Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Why write this book? And more importantly, why write this book now? According to Donna Freitas, author of 12 books, including a novel, young adult fiction, nonfiction, and a memoir, is the first question you must answer before you write a book. The answer to those questions is what will give your writing urgency, says Donna. The why is what moves you to search for the answers to life's truths that we so often ignore. Most recently, Donna published The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano, a novel that explores the nine possible outcomes when a woman who has never wanted children marries a man who gradually decides he does. Each of the nine stories begins with the same argument, but resolves differently with each telling. Today, we are lucky to have Donna here to discuss the why behind her most recent novel, how she conceived of the inventive structure for it, how she developed her characters, how she hooked and held the reader, and her best advice for writers who want to change the world through their writing. Welcome, Donna, to our podcast. We're so excited to have you here today with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. So can you tell us a little bit first about the breadth of your writing? You've done so many different types of writing over your career. How did you get into writing? What was your first book? And tell us just personally about the type of writing that you like doing the best. Is it nonfiction? Is it fiction? Is it young adult fiction? Or what do you like about each? I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey. My journey to becoming a writer is sort of a strange one in the sense that whenever I'm on panels where someone gets like, we we all get this question of like, how did you become a writer? When did you know you wanted to become a writer? I feel like most people will say something like, oh, when I was six or when I was eight or when I was, you know, when I was in fourth grade and I never set out to be a writer. (laughs) I knew that writing was going to be part of my life because I decided to get a PhD And so I was going to do the writing required. I was going to have to write a dissertation and I was going to have to write academic articles, but I never thought of myself as someone who was going to become the writer that I am. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of my writing life has been accidental. The first opportunity I had to write a book was because I was giving a talk at an academic conference with a friend. And a a woman came up to us after our talk and said, you guys should write a book about that, about what we were talking about. And we were like, sure, that would be fun. Ha ha. And then she handed us her card and she was a publisher. So we emailed her after and we were like, were you for real? Like this was way back, you know, when like writing wasn't even like a twinkle in my eye. And she was like, I was for real. And so I think of that book as my training wheels book. And then I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing it. Like I learned a lot. It was sort of like, 
I don't even want to tell you what it's called because I feel like I should just keep it a secret. It was really a training wheels book, but it did make me like realize I liked writing. And then the next time I was like, you know, I'm going to try to do this like again, I'm going to try to do this again. But I really thought it would be all nonfiction. And the first time I wrote a novel, it was also, I was doing a lot of book reviews and I was reviewing a lot of novels. And my first novel was a YA novel. And I just, one day I just was like, oh, I'm going to play around with this. And I ended up writing this whole novel that was really bad. And then I had to revise it and the whole thing. But I never in a million years did I think it would be published. And so for a really long time, I did not call myself a writer. And then I remember like a flash memory. I was at a party with uh, my roommate from college and she introduced me to someone else as a, like, this is my friend, Donna, she's a writer. And I was like, I'm not a writer. And she looked at me and she was like, Donna, you've written six books. I think you're a writer. And I was like, huh, <laughs> maybe I am. So I, I know that's not, that's not really a normal story, but it took me a while before I began to really intentionally build a career and, and start trying to develop skills in a real way as a writer. Can you tell me about that, how you began to actively work on the craft of writing? Because now you teach writing, My is my understanding, you do some teaching of writing. So when did you start to work on the craft and what did you start working on first? Because it's very different working on like a dissertation and academic writing and more popular writing. So I, I don't have an MFA. I do do a lot of teaching. I mean, I was a born teacher. My mom was a teacher. I feel like I take after her. Like I love teaching. So I was a professor when I got out of grad school. And like my favorite thing ever is, is teaching. I love teaching people to write. I've learned a lot about writing from teaching because it's yeah. made me look at my work in a craft way that I didn't do before. And I've learned a lot from my colleagues. I also... I do a lot of writing coaching work because I love, I like, I joke about how I'm like the fixer. Like I love helping people fix their books. But what early in my career, I'll give you an example. When I was writing my first novel, I was having a blast, like writing this YA novel about this Italian girl that I was like, basically that took after my mother. And I wrote 50 pages. And I was like, la, 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 you know, this is so, this is so much fun. I was just like, you know, banging the keyboard, getting all the stuff done. And then I stopped and I started looking at it and I was like, something is missing here. And I started rereading it. And then I was like, oh, dialogue. I wrote 50 pages without dialogue. <laughs> I wrote 50 pages of internal monologue. And then I was like, how do people do that? And I just started pulling books off the shelf. And just opening them and being like, how does this work? And I mean, that, so that's a lot of what I did in the beginning was just looking at other books to just try to understand how do you construct a scene? How do you like literally like he said, she said, you know, how, where, how does the dial, what does it look like? Like I started noticing, oh, like people, sometimes it'll be like, Joe stood up. And then he said, I want a pizza. You know, like, so there's like a gesture and then you do dialogue. Like I started paying attention to those things. So a lot of it was just very basic. I would say though, I didn't say this in my first answer, but I often think about this. I feel like the person who turned me into a writer, the writer that I am today in a lot of ways was my dissertation director, which is sort of unusual. I feel like a lot of people come out of grad school and they never want to think about their dissertation director again. 
but I had this wonderful dissertation director and he had theories on how you get the dissertation done. And he told me, he sat me down in his office and he was just like, listen, Donna, like you should not spend more than six months on your dissertation. He said, people spend 10 years on these things. And he was like, it's a waste of time. It's a big research paper. So this, this whole experience is going to be about you getting it done. It's a means to getting your, your PhD. So we're not going to spend more than six months. And I was like, okay. And he was like, here's what you're going to do. He's like, you're going to sit down and you're going to write the intro. And then you're not going to look back because I know people who revise their intro for years and then they never move forward. They never write chapter one. He was like, you're going to write your intro and you're going to send it to me and you're not going to look at it again. You're going to write your chapter one and you're going to send it to me. And he's like, and I'm going to read as you go. And then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just like, let you know that I'm here reading and you're going to write every day. He told me you're going to write every day. Even if you write terrible, terrible words one day, you can always go back and revise. I just want you to have a draft. So I finished my dissertation in six months, revised it, the whole thing. And then the whole time I was writing, he would send me these little notes, say, dear Professor Freitas. And as a sort of like encouragement, yeah. and I think about that, like it was like, it was like book writing boot camp, And I, that's how I became a writer. I feel like he told me, he taught me how not to be afraid of the book, not to be afraid to like sit down and just go, even if the words don't come out perfect. And I feel like that was a huge part of who I am as a writer. So yeah. accidentally he turned me into a writer uh, or maybe intentionally. Like he always, he told me, when I was working with him, you're going to write a lot of books. I know you're going to write a lot of books. And I was like, oh, okay. But he was right. I love that because what he taught you wasn't so much the crafting of a sentence. What he taught you was kind of the first principles of how you lay down a first draft. Because if you can't lay down that draft, you have nothing. And that, that is so huge as I think about my own writing and think about laying down that first draft and the discipline to write the intro, then move to the second chapter. And I'm sure later he was there were, you had a lot of revisions, but just that structure of laying down and not looking back is a huge gift to a, to a young writer. I think he, he taught me not to be afraid of sitting down and just moving forward. And then he also taught me to have faith in myself. I could do this and that I can always go back and revise and that I shouldn't worry. Like I shouldn't worry. I should just get that first draft down. And so I I think about him a lot because it was such so many people, especially people getting their PhDs, they have such writer's block and they really do get stuck. And his whole philosophy was like, you're not going to get stuck. Hmm. And if you do, I'm going to pull you out. Like I'm going to be like dear future professor Freitas or dear future Dr. Freitas. And so it was a really great experience. And so I think I I do write my first drafts really fast. And then I go back and revising is super intense as it is for everybody. You do lots of different drafts and they're very painstaking. But he turns, believe it or not, the experience of writing my dissertation or writing a book into this sort of joyous process. And also like communal, like he made me feel like I wasn't alone. So I, it was a really great setup for, for being unafraid to try new things and also just to write books. I was going through your website and you had such lovely things to say on your website. One of the things that I kind of dug into and grasped onto is you said that writing is the most powerful agent of change. And and I love that. And 
so many writers don't go in with that mindset. I think sometimes it's like a, as a thing that to build up their ego or whatever, but it's really about a mindset shift. I think when you're going to write words that matter, I think you have to embrace this idea that words are powerful. Writing is powerful. How, where did you kind of come up with that thinking and where, when did that start to sink in for you? And is it true even with novels? I think it's especially true with yeah. novels for me. Well, I, I would say one of the things, I keep coming back to grad school, but I do feel like so much of what I studied formed who I am and how I think as a writer. But I, I specifically uh, studied, I did gender studies. And one of the things that we talked about all the time was, was voice and how voices are hidden or they're erased and how so much of what my graduate program and the work I did was about was how do you sort of dig for those voices that have been lost in, in the past or that have been sort of ignored? And then how do you lift up those voices? And, you know, what does that mean? Or how do you empower people to lift up their own voices? When is it your role to do that? So I feel like so much of my education was about the power of, of voice, but also about the injustice of the way that we've ignored certain voices. So I just, I, I guess when I started out and I was, especially when I was writing my nonfiction work, because I do these national studies where I like talk to people about different questions. And then I'm often looking for the conversations that we've overlooked somehow so that I can go to talk to people about those and then sort of pull out what is that thing and, and lift up that conversation. So I feel like in my nonfiction work, that has been really evident and it, it really ties back to grad school. But I feel like it's, I also think of it as writing, especially writing a creative, like creatively, like so creative nonfiction and, and, and fiction in general is an agent of change for me. Like I feel like writing changes me. Like I, I certainly use it for my own like self and, and need. And so I feel like I often, I, I said a lot, I said this on Saturday when I was doing this workshop the other day that the first draft is for you. Like the first draft is for you. Like you get to, you get to be selfish. Like you get to need something from your book. And then the other drafts, you're thinking more of, of the audience. And, but I do think that there's writing has been incredibly transformative for me. It's where I work out my grief and my pain and my anger. And often it's where I crack myself up or like I find my joy. And, and then what's really amazing is when you do publish a book or, or books, it's suddenly this connection to an audience and suddenly you find yourself in dialogue with other people or that it's transformed other people. And so so I guess but it definitely started back in my studies, though. Yeah. So with this, all those conversations I had about voice. In your response to Melissa's first question, you talked about fixing manuscripts. I think you used that phrase. Is that correct? Oh, like I'm a fixer. Yeah. So I'd love to explore that just a little bit. You also teach writers. So you teach on your expertise, but you also teach writing itself. Talk about some of the most common fixes that you have to go after that are kind of common and maybe the ones that maybe are not so common, but are still really important. So I, everybody has different skills, I think as, as a writer in terms of feedback, and I'm sure 
you all have this yourselves. Like there are, you develop your own writing community when, when you're a writer and then certain people in that community you go to for things like someone is the person who can really take a look at your prose, you know, and, and sort of be like, Oh, this sentence isn't working. And, and there's another person who's just helpful with like big picture or, and I'm like plot and structure. <laughs> so that's, that's my job with all of my writer friends. And I think often with my students and I, I really feel like everybody brings their own talents and, you know, and everybody can sort of do everything to a degree, but I joke about how, like, I'm not going to prettify your prose. Like, that's not my, that's not my skill. Like other people have prettier prose, but like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix your plot. So I really like that sort of bird's eye look and, and sort of diagnosing. Sometimes I think, especially if you're writing a novel little by little, maybe like in an MFA and you have lots of different like professors or you're just giving things to your writing group, you don't necessarily, you sort of lose the big picture sometimes if you're doing things piecemeal. And so I think one of the things I see a lot are maybe there's a really good idea for a novel and there's some really strong characters, but they're just kind of swimming around like aimlessly. The plot is often missing or the, the thing that really drives a narrative forward, like the tension, the knot. And so I feel like figuring out the structure, like often just coming up with, I think there are easy ways to create structure, but that's one of the things that some people get overwhelmed by. Like I, I get overwhelmed by, like if you ask me to like revise a single sentence, I'm like, ooh. Like, it'll, it'll take me forever. But if you ask me to like, like fix the whole thing, I can do that much easier. So I think the, the structure piece. And then I think the other thing that I work really hard to pull out of people is the why. Because that's also where you often get the, the tension and the, the momentum, which is people don't necessarily, they haven't really figured out really what is at the heart of this book. What is driving it? And I'll give you an example. I was working with this woman who had this amazing story from her childhood and her parents used her as a drug mule when she was six. So she was writing a, a memoir and then she ended up become a, becoming a pastor. So she wanted to write and the working title was Breaking Good, which is a great title. But we, we talked and talked and talked in circles around like what was really going to drive this. And she was having a hard time sort of getting the beginning right. And then finally we had this like two hour conversation one day and I just kept asking and asking and asking. And finally I pulled out of her or she said, cause I was like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Cause then they give you the structure. That's going to give you the, like exactly how you need to build this. And she finally said, I want to forgive my parents. And I was like, well, there you go. Like right to that. Like there, there you go. Cause I feel like if you can find that, why, like, if that's your goal, if you're like, even if you can't do it, even if by the end you can't forgive your parents, but like, if that's what you're gunning for, like suddenly then, you know, the road you're like, okay, what do I need to do to get there? Like, how, how do I, how do I get to this place where maybe I can forgive my parents for my childhood? And so I feel like that piece, we often don't do it we don't take the time to really ask ourselves like what's in this for us? Like, why are we doing this? And so I think it's, I think it's worth it though. Cause I think that's really where then you, you find your way. 
So can you talk about then the why? So I'm sure when you wrote your, your latest novel, Benign Lives of Rose Napolitano, did you ask that question, the why, before you started that? And how did that drive kind of the tension and the plot in, in that book? Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't think I start a book until I know the why. So okay. this is my process, I guess. Like, this is my, this, this has to do with my theory of how you write a book too. Like, I guess, like something rattles around in my head. I walk around the world thinking about like, ah, I want to do something. Like, I want to write about X, but I don't necessarily know the way in. But I, I knew very intensely to my core that I wanted to write about a woman who didn't want children because we do not see her unless she is like, the woman we lock in the attic or the spinster we feel sorry for. And I, I was like, otherwise she just doesn't really exist in, in literature and I'm going to present her. And I had early on in my career, I really, I had someone really tell me I should never ever write about a woman who doesn't want children because no one wants to read about her. And that rattled around in my head for a good, probably like 12 years before I was like, well, Maybe no one will ever publish this, but I'm doing this because like this is in me and I want to. And so so I knew I wanted that, but I didn't know how to do it. Like I didn't know how I wanted to do it because I had a lot of ideas about which way to go. And I was like, well, is she going to be the woman who doesn't want children, but she has one anyway? And then we see what happens. Or is she going to be the woman who doesn't want children and she doesn't have them and we see what happens? And or, you know, I could think of all these different ways of doing it. And then one day... I was actually at a talk and like sitting in the audience at a talk and it popped into my head, just like, what if I could write all the story? Yeah. And, and that's when I was like, ah, and I wrote down the list of like, she could do this. She could do this. She could do this. And I wrote down all the lives and then I counted them and I was like, how convenient there's nine. And then I, that's what made me sit down to write. And I think what felt really exciting to me about that sort of that coming together was one of the things I knew because I know from being a woman who doesn't have children, but also from what I've been told over the years is that we don't like women who don't have children or we, we have a hard time with women who make that choice. And so I thought this is going to help me with my audience. I'm going to show this woman who doesn't want children. I'm going to show her with a child and people are going to forgive her for the versions where she doesn't have a child. Because I did feel like this book is, is also asking permission to be a woman who doesn't want children. So I like wrote, I wrote, I think I wrote for forgiveness too. I was like, I want to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven by people, by, by people for not, for being this woman that most people don't like, or for being, for making this choice that people have a hard time with. That's incredible. That's powerful. What I like about what you did, how you got multiple readers on board with it by telling so many narratives, but what you've been really praised for in this book is how fresh the structure is, your actual structuring of the book by following these nine different narratives. It's, it's really engaging. I know you had this idea to follow nine different scenarios, but was it challenging to keep them a similar length or did some want to go longer than others? Can you talk a little bit about that? There's, there's a way in which all the other books I wrote prepared me to write this book. I think by the time I wrote this book, I really knew the novel well, as in I was unafraid of the novel and all its parts. I knew the different things it could do and what I could do with it because I had played around with the novel for a long time and I'd written a whole bunch of books. So I think in a lot of ways that 
made me unafraid to then take it apart, like, or take apart my character and put her back together and, and just really try to take advantage of the form itself. But I did learn a lot about myself as a writer from writing this book. And it's interesting. So I, I'm a math person. I was a math kid. Like I was really into math. I was going to go to college and major in math. Like that was my thing. I got it from my dad. My dad and I used to like do math. And then, so I thought I was going to be a math major and I ended up majoring in philosophy, which is of course also a lot like math. And then I've really pursued things that allow me to think systemically, I guess, or like big picture, like big ideas, like, you know, who are we and why are we here? Like, I, you know, like I'm, and, and like, how does, what does that look like? And so I, I think the structure is my favorite structure I've ever written. And I did it all in my head. And this is what I feel like people don't like to hear. Cause I think everyone wants to know, did I have like a murder board? Like all the different lives lined up and, even one of my editors, my, my UK editor for this book, she came up with like a color-coded outline of every life and like all the things that were happening in all the chapters. And then she sent it to me because I think she thought I was going to use it. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm glad you made this, Martha. Like, I hope you enjoyed it. But I didn't have it. And it was really like I, like an instinct. It was like instinct, like I know this book needs this next and it needs that next. And then it is like just following my gut. But I also have this math. I have a math brain and it was like, I could see the whole thing. It was like a giant word problem that I was like doing. And I think part of why I loved writing it so much is because I, it got, I got to be my math self and I got, and I think I figured out that, oh, part of why I love writing novels and part of why I love structure is because I love math and I love systems and I love building systems and I've always loved it. And maybe that's why I'm, I'm the fixer for people's plots. But mm-hmm. that's what I discovered about myself from that book. But I feel like people always want to hear that, like, I had it all written out and, and I did it. Did you struggle to sell your editor on the structure? Did you have to fight for your structure at all at any point in the process? No. I mean, people seem to have two different ways of reading that book. They either, because I've I've actually had readers send me like color coded with like sticky notes, like they mapped out the book for themselves. So like, there seem to be some readers who really methodically follow each of the lives and try to like figure out what's going on and they, they map it. And then there are other readers who are just like, I'm not even going to worry. I'm just going with it. And they just sort of don't worry about which life is which. And they just kind of read it like as a, just as a novel that isn't broken into the parts. And so, so, so people have different ways of doing it, but I, there's been some people who are like, I thought it was hard, but most people have just kind of kind of gone with it and figured out their own approach. Did your first draft come easier then in this book? Was there any difference in the writing of it? Given the fact that this was in your head, was that first draft like pretty true to what was in your head? I knew the general arc of it, or I knew that like, I knew oh, I'm going to do these nine lives and this is going to happen. But I think as most writers do there were things I discovered as I wrote and 
there were things I didn't know when I started. And I think that's so exciting when you start discovering things, but like, I don't want to give the end of the book of the way book away, but I didn't know how I was going to end the book. When I started, I thought of it maybe 50 pages in, I suddenly had this moment where I was like, like, what if I could do this thing, you know, and that's when my math brain really went crazy, I think. And, and then I like wrote, I, and I jumped ahead and I wrote the end, I wrote the last chapter. And then it was about like piecing it together. But what, one of the things I wish I could just, I wish I could just break every character now up like this, because one of the things that was really fun about the structure was because I had nine different roses going at different points. And I also had, so I guess I think of there's, I'm doing two things at once. I am sort of breaking Rose apart in order to show her different lives, but I'm also building her as a whole over the course of the whole novel. So even though there's nine different versions, I'm ultimately building one character And then the thing that was steady throughout it all were the other characters. I feel like mostly they are the same all throughout. So they were like the rudders or the the foundation. And so they could, so Rose could sort of go do different things if everybody else was kind of maintaining. So sort of figuring that out was important. But the, the other thing that was really fun about revising that book was because there were so many moving parts, I sort of finished the draft and I was like, what is missing? And I was like, oh, I need to develop like this character a little bit more. I need to do this character a little bit more. And so then it was about like plugging. Like I would just find a space in the manuscript and because it was jumping around so much, I could just like insert a new chapter that did this one thing with a certain rose, maybe like with her father or whatever. And then I would fix something in the manuscript. So it was very clean actually to revise it because of the structure. What are signs that a character needs to be developed more? If you could answer that, that'd be really helpful because we're always talking about character development, especially with our novice writers. And it's really hard to identify. Is this character developed enough? What are some signs? How would you coach somebody to develop a character more? So I believe readers usually know. They usually know when something's missing from a character. Like you kind of suspect it. So I think sometimes just think, like, listen to your gut, but I'll give you an example. So one of the things I let myself do with the first draft is I, I let myself be the characters that I need them to be to get it done. So for example, for Rose in the first draft, I know, like, I feel like this is still my most problematic character in Rose, but anyway, her husband was absolutely like grade A villain. He was like, villain, 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 because that's what I needed him to be to get the book done. I was like, her husband's a villain. (laughs) Like I needed to sort of like play off of him as a villain. So I just let him just be a villain. And I knew, I knew in my heart, it can't stay this way. (laughs) Like I got to fix him. Like I got to go back. I got to make him more three-dimensional. I got to make him so you can maybe like him. And like, I got to, I got to develop his personality and his needs and his opinions. But I didn't need to do it for the first draft because for the first draft, I needed to just worry about Rose and nobody else. And so I do think it's okay for us to let our characters, especially early on, serve us, like just getting the book done. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of know when we're writing like, oh, this person is kind of thin or flat. 
And then I think, but I think it's fine because I think sometimes you just need somebody to be one dimensional so you can let like let other people be really three dimensional or you can play off of them because you can always go back and then you can always flesh them out. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think you have to do that right away. And I think sometimes that was the character I probably developed the most over the course of the book. I, have, I kept having to go back and work on him because I really needed him to be something different to, in the beginning of the novel when I was first writing it. So when you say three-dimensional for people who are, are new to writing, what, what would that look like? So you, his name is Luke, is that right? The, yeah. the, how did you make him less of a villain? Like what, what did you do to make him more likable? What did you do to make him at least more sympathetic to the reader? I'm not sure I made him as sympathetic enough, but anyway, so yeah, a lot of people still think of him as a villain, but he's so much better than he was in the beginning. (laughs) He's like, I feel like he's way, he's leagues better. I think part of what I had to do was I had to ask myself about, like put myself in his place and ask myself like, well, what are his motivations? Why does he want what he wants? And like, why might he be justified in being, frustrated by not getting it or like that his wife doesn't want to listen or that why won't she even consider that it's okay that you know that, that like maybe people change their minds about this it's a big deal like I had to ask really ask myself about what his motivations were and then just like who is he and why did she love him so like I feel like a lot of the things that were missing from the first draft were scenes where you saw them happy together because I didn't need those scenes in the first draft because what I needed was the other stuff. Like I needed to like push them forward and really push their marriage and uh, make it complicated and, and, and deal with this question of where they're, where they're not going to have kids. And so a lot of that got added later. And I think if I took them back, if I took them as a couple back before the beginning of the novel, like, or the beginning of the, the fight where they're deciding whether or not to have kids, I could show both of them in a different light, including Luke. I could show why Rose fell in love with him. And so I think that developed his character. So a lot of it is just trying to figure out how can I use the structure? How can I use the structure or the story that I have to give my characters opportunities to show their complexity? And I think sometimes on the opposite side of the spectrum, I feel like a lot of my students or some of the writers that I'll work with when they hire me to help with their books, they'll make their character too nice. And so they'll be afraid to show their protagonist making decisions that make us cringe or doing things that we disapprove of and being complex, being human, essentially. And they make that mistake, I think. We're often afraid to show the, the yeah. sort of the ugly of our characters. And I think it's one of the most important things we can do. I love that. And I think that that's probably where the growth comes from you as a writer internally, when you begin to ask those questions to understand your characters more. I mean, I'm sure you uncovered some things, some ideas, some thinking that maybe weren't there at the beginning of the writing process. I was going to ask about your philosophy of how do you start novels or even all books? You know, that phrase in medias res, start as close as to the action as possible. Do you have a, any kind of philosophy on that or a way you coach writers? So how am I going to start this novel? I could start it at the beginning, but it might be better if I start it 
right where so-and-so is summiting Mount Everest and, you know, is about ready to die. I mean, so where do you, where do you, do you have a, do you have some thinking on that? This takes me back to my, my early days as a, a children's novelist. So I've written YA and, and, and middle grade and forward momentum, you know, like, like everybody talks about, like, how do you get the reluctant reader to like stick around and read the book? And I feel like you think about that a lot as a children's writer, you're like, how can I, how can I pull the reader? And I don't know that novelists for adults think about that so much, but I don't think it's any less important to be honest. And one of the, the examples I've given before to people, because everybody's like, what's the difference between YA and adults and the Goldfinch by Donna Tart. I'm not giving anything away by, by saying that like, it starts with a bomb going off, except I think the bomb goes off. It's like page 32 and it's like 32 really dense pages with tiny font. And so that's pretty early in an adult novel, but in a YA novel, the bomb would have gone off on like page two. So I feel like if a bomb's going to go off, like let it go off and then like pick up the pieces later, you know, and then you can always go back. And so I feel like really like diving in and not being afraid to, to dive in to the, to like the, the not like, you know, like throw it at the reader, like right away. Cause I, I do feel like my, my cycle or my rules for myself when I'm writing is I feel like every chapter is a fishing expedition. I'm like, my job is to hook the reader right away. And if I get, if I hook the reader, I can do whatever I want. I can do all kinds of internal monologue and I can do pretty sentences. And it's a cycle of, hooking and holding hooking and holding every chapter is that for me so i often feel like what i'm doing when i'm working with writers is i'm i'm helping them sometimes find out like oh your chapter one is actually on page 80 and maybe some of the stuff you can like put late you know work into later drafts but like really this was background that you needed to write for yourself to get to know the story and then just convincing them to not be afraid to like to let to have a plot i feel like sometimes we don't, we don't respect plot. We think of it as like commercial and not literary. And I actually think it's the thing that lets you be literary because if mm. you have a really driving plot, like if you've got, like if you've hooked your reader, you can do whatever you want. Like you can, you can talk about Heidegger, which I've done in different like places. And, Heidegger. Um, and like, <laughs> but so you gotta like, it's like you, you've earned the right to hold the reader and just like they're, they're in, they're in. And so, um, so once you've got them, you can, you can do a lot. And I think, so anyway, I'm a big believer in plot and I really respect it. And it always, I kind of, it kind of bothers me when I feel like a lot of people sort of are down on plot or they, they, yeah, they look down on it. And I, I actually think it's, it's really, it's gotta be the heart because it's what, it's what lets you do what you want. Can you briefly, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but this whole idea of hook and hold, hook and hold is, it's so interesting to me. And does that apply to nonfiction? And if so, how, like if you were working with somebody in a nonfiction book, how would you encourage them to hook and hold in their book? I think you have to know your argument because the, the argument is like a plot. <laughs> so it's, a, it's the thing, it's a driving force. And I think you have to be unafraid to, to make the argument. Hmm. So, so there's a way in which you have to, yeah, you have to be unafraid to assert yourself. And I think to, 
to be unafraid to assert yourself, you have to have done the research. You have to really know your topic. Like you have to be an authority and you have to have earned that. And so I think that's part of what lets you write that driving argument is. And so, I mean, I'm saying that as someone who is a researcher and who spends like years like researching books before I write them. And I think the other piece is you have to realize that an argument is a story and that ultimately in a nonfiction book, your job is to be a storyteller, just like a novelist, just like a memoirist. You're being a storyteller, but you're using your research to do it. So you have to find the story in it and you have to dig for it. When you are thinking about writing another book, how do you think about like fitting it into your life? You're so busy, right? You, you're doing multiple things at once. How, how do you think of the writing life in the midst of everything else that you have going on? How do you make room for it in your life? Do you schedule it in? Is it something that you commit to every single day? Do you go through periods where you write more or less? If you have a deadline or can you speak to that? I write every day. I, it's a, it's a part of my ritual, I guess. So like I get up in the morning, I make my coffee, I read, and then I write, even if it's kind of crappy writing, (laughs) it's just what I do every single day. And even if it's just for like 20 minutes, but that's sort of my thought is that even if it's just for 20 minutes, you just have to commit to it. And so I'm often doing all these things at once. Like I'm working on a book, I'm helping people with their books or, you know, with my students or with the people I'm working with, like the other writers I'm helping with their books, or I'm like writing an article in the afternoon or reviewing a book or giving a talk somewhere. But I'm, I'm always doing that thing in the morning and I'm a morning person, but I think a lot of it is just the commitment. And it goes back to my dissertation director, who was literally like, if you write a thousand words a day, eventually you got a dissertation. And his thing, though, was he was like, if you do three pages, three double space pages a a day in 100 days, you'll have your dissertation. So that's what he told me. And that's what I did. That's a death march. That was my commitment. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't, though, because you get used to it. Like it disarms. Like if you're just like, it's just three pages. And really, it's a page and a half because I like to write single space. And that's actually not that much. And if you're just, if you're not worried that like every sentence has to be perfect, if you're just like, I got to like move forward, it's not that daunting. And then it becomes a habit and not to bring back philosophy, but I'm very Aristotelian in this way. So like Aristotle, one of my favorite things uh, for him was like virtue is a habit and it's something like you have to practice it just like vice is a habit we practice it and we become it becomes our habit and so so anyway like if you have good habits around writing they just like you just you just start they just become part of what you're you're doing and so i do think if like the habit part of it is like goes a long way one of the things i was admiring in your writing is how you create a how you create a scene I actually could visualize myself in the rooms, in the spaces. I could, I could see things and I could smell things. And I was so impressed with that. How do you make sure that you're creating a scene that people can actually imagine themselves being in? Because this is where a lot of our new writers, they really struggle with scene creation. Do you have any tips for that? I think some of it is learning what your skills are as a writer. 
So for example, like I build the scenes out over the course of drafts. So often my first draft is like heavy on the, the dialogue. Like I know the dialogue and I can sort of see basic movements where they are in the house or like what's going on or who's turned where, but I don't necessarily know if the windows are open or if it's um, raining or that's stuff that I ask myself later. Or sometimes, sometimes I'll, like I have a list actually of things called like, where are you standing? Because these, these are things that I try to remember when I'm creating a scene, like, like just things like, is it raining out? Is it sunny? Like, what's the weather? Like, is what, what season is it? Is it summer? Like, is it, is it hot? Like, is it night? Is it day? Like, where, like, where are you? Like, are you in a city? Are you in the country? Like, are you on the sidewalk? Are you at, in bed? Like where, like just sort of like getting a sense of, of the space of the character and what's, what's around them. And just like not forgetting all these different things. Cause one of the things I think a lot of my students will do is they'll, they'll just, they'll do a lot of internal monologue and I will have no idea what's going on. Like I'll just, I, I was just looking at a chapter I was writing for something I'm working on right now. And the first line of the book is the sun is out. And like, I'm sitting on my mother's bed and, you know, like, there you go. Like the sun is out. Like there's a girl on her mother's bed and the mother's folding laundry. And so you have these like three visuals right there. And I feel like just with very simple statements, you can evoke a lot, but I do think some of it is just also letting yourself write to your strengths that first draft. Cause you can always figure that other stuff out. Like your impulse, like is your first impulse to a line of dialogue? Like I'm always, I feel like that's such an easy way to start a scene, but a lot of people don't do it. Like just a line of dialogues, like suddenly you can hear someone and like you're in a conversation and that's engaging. And it's, I think it's one of the simplest ways to build a scene, but a lot of people don't do it. Or what does the character see? Like the sun is out. Cause like suddenly we, we can see something. So a lot of it is just, we could hear something or we could see something. So use the senses, I guess. Or like something smells terrible. (laughs) (laughs) One of the details in one of your scenes was you were talking about Luke and how he came over to her side of the bed and he never goes over to her side of the bed. And I, for some reason that stuck with me and like it, like it was such a detail that I don't think too many people would think to include, but it said something about the moment, right? So I, I loved that you were, I, I was really taken in by your, your scene writing. It was really wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today, Don. You have given us so much wisdom here and you've shared so generously. We're, I know that our listeners are going to just glean so much from this. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been so nice to talk to you guys and, and I hope people enjoy it. All right, Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. I want you to go first this week and then I'll go second. What is your word of the episode? Mine is inanity. Inanity, and I thought it was inanity, but it's inanity. And it's this nonsensical remark or action. So it's somebody who is saying something that's inane. And it's uh, I, so it's the IT version of that, ITY version of that, inanity. So they utter whatever inanities will get them elected. That would be a way to talk about it. Or he commented on the breathtaking inanity of the school board's decision. So it's something that's nonsensical, silly, 
you're and, and to you, it's like, oh my God, this is an idiot, almost an idiot saying <laughs> something or doing something. So inanity, it would, it would be my word. There's a lot of inanity out there <laughs> on social media, right? But we, we're, we're oh in the gosh. anti-inanity zone. <laughs> exactly. That's great. All how, right. about, how about you? Well, mine is a fun word that I came across. I, on social media, I follow dictionary.com. And this is one that I didn't know. And I'm hoping that I can memorize it so I can use it in the future because I think it's a great word. And it is frondescence, frondescence, and it simply means leafage or foliage. So in fall, the frondescence is changing from green to gold. It's just really a fancy word for leafage or foliage. So I, I think it's a pretty word though. So I think that's why it is I, a pretty word. So two words, frondescence and inanity. We'll, we'll try to use them this week. All right. Well, it was another great episode. I think that that's a wrap, Dave. What do you think? It's one of our best yet. I think one of our best episodes. I just, uh, everything about this was practical and gave me new energy to write. All right. Well, I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 